Support for MPB comes from the Mississippi Museum of Art in Jackson. What Became of Dr. Smith by artist Noah Satterstrom is on view now through September 22, 2024. Learn more at msmuseumart.org. This podcast is a local production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting. It's made possible in part by contributions from podcast listeners. Please consider making a contribution by going to the Donate Now tab at mpbonline.org. Thanks for your financial support. Welcome to the Mississippi Arts Hour on MPB Think Radio, where each week we talk with creative Mississippians. I'm your host, Leslie Barker, Arts-Based Community Development Director at the Mississippi Arts Commission. And today I'm talking with actor, director, playwright, poet, and Mac Fellowship recipient, T.K. Lee. Thank you so much for being here today. Hey, thank you for having me. I'm delighted to be here, Leslie. So in, in your everyday life, you're referred to as Chris, correct? Correct. I am. Yeah. <laughs> so we'll, so we'll, we'll go by that. But if you're looking for his work, which you will be after this interview, uh, remember it's under TK Lee. But so let's let's just get started. So we're going to cover a lot of territory here, but I love uh-huh. to start at the beginning. OK, where where did you grow up? I grew up in Mississippi. I, I wasn't born in Mississippi. I was born in Charleston, South Carolina, but I had family mm. in Mississippi in the Delta and also on the hillside, as people <laughs> often refer to it. And I ended up here um, with my great uncle. I wasn't brought up by my parents, which has been a big thing. It's really formed my perspective on art and as an artist. But my mother's uncle uh, brought me up and um, and I grew up in Louisville, Mississippi. Mm. So, yeah, that's for my formative years anyway. From when you say that your uncle was a big part of, you know, the forming of you as an artist, is that was your uncle an artist or was that just a perspective you got? No, no, no artist at all. Actually, we um, and he gets a kick out of this sometimes. We could not be more unlike in that regard. But um, but the, I, when I say formed my perspective, uh, which is a great word for it. It's just that the the way I was brought up was already removed from my own peerage. You know, the, the whole generation of my parents, I never knew. I knew instantly elderly people. Mm. <laughs> and I, I was a, a very quiet child and mostly around a lot of much older people. And I think just living in that quiet uh, was a unique thing for someone who ended up being an artist. I And I say this with complete respect. I never felt you know, unloved or unprovided for or anything like that, but not being the child, like the direct uh, child of my uncle always kept me in mind of being on the outside or being a fringe member, you know, not uh, very aware of the other. And I think sitting with that and being the only child and certainly loved, I don't mean it has nothing to do with that. It's just Mm -hmm. the fact of the matter of not being the son or, you know, to, he lived in one house, his sister lived in the house next door, and I was certainly doted upon, but I was always aware that it was, you know, out of mercy that, that I was being brought up and, and, and loved and given a lot of room to be quiet mm. and a lot of room to figure things out because I guess there was a large distance age-wise, you know, but uh, that's what I mean by when I say growing up like that shaped my perspective, uh, which, you know, I didn't act like any other child or anyone my age and uh, and I was a huge reader. So I think all of those things, when you have a child you don't understand, uh, they did the right thing. They just gave me room to to be that child that they didn't understand. And in that, they learned and I learned. And I think I'm the better for it now that I'm on this side of 
that age, if you will. I couldn't imagine mm-hmm. having a child as a single parent and the way that he did and, and, and loving them regardless, but them to not be your own child and to give them all that he gave me, I think it's certainly helped shape, you know, my perspective. Yeah. Does your uncle show up in any characters in any of your work? <laughs> yes, he does. <laughs> um, you know, I, I think early on when I realized I was on the inside, but from the outside looking in, if that makes sense, I mm-hmm. created without knowing it. And I think this is true for any artist, but I think, I don't know, bizarrely specific and true for Southern artists, but I made amalgamations of the people. Like I, I had an ident archetype of the Southern gentleman and I compounded all of the relatives I knew that were like that into this sort of giant, you know, in the back of my mind. And I used those mm-hmm. as my references. So yes, he's a part of a lot of what I write, but not only him. So I can neither, pre- I'm protecting the endangered or the satisfied. I don't know. No one can take full credit for who they think they see in themselves of my work, but he is certainly there. Absolutely. In reading about your work, and then in, I've recently started reading a book of your poetry as well, the South is such a, a presence, right? Which I love. Mm-hmm. I love a sense of place. It's just beautiful. But, you know, you talked about creating these, you know, archetype characters and having the amalgamations of them. Were you aware of that or was it something that you just did? Like, when did you become aware of, I'm creating these Southern archetypal characters? You know, I. I'm fortunate that I come from a family, even though they aren't all artists the way that we might be discussing or defining it today, but they are all storytellers. And Mm -hmm. I grew up very much in the culture of exaggeration, Uh, not Mm -hmm. not to the point of lying, but I guess all of it is in a way, but that's okay. Uh, No, just the (laughs) idea that if someone is giving you their time, don't waste it. And so I think learning to embellish, learning to tell stories. That is something truly out of, my uncle is a huge storyteller. And so mm. I think that I, I didn't know to be aware of it because I had always been in it. I guess, mm. you know, the sort of the tall tale and the larger than life uh, idea of everyone outside of the family, which is good and bad sometimes in the way that you tell the story with the purpose of telling your story. But I don't think I became aware of any of it until I went to school, until I even went to graduate school and knew I was just compelled. I, I think mm. a lot of artists are, I suppose, uh, that's where it starts, is this idea that something beyond you is pulling you. And I was fortunate that even though they didn't understand theater or why I wanted to do it, and actually they didn't understand anything outside of the church. Like if I did it inside the church, that made sense. Outside the church, they didn't understand it, but they didn't, you know, my uncle, the greatest gift he ever gave me was to just not get in the way. And I don't mean mm. that like he shouldn't as a parent, because he did take great care of me, but like he never said, Oh, that's, you shouldn't do that. That's wrong. Or uh, nobody else. You can't make a living that way. He just was like, you're different and that's okay. So go do this thing you're doing. But I, until I had to know them for terms, you know, for writing a paper or whatnot, I didn't know that I was doing, you know, archetypal writing or um, anything to that effect. And I'm glad in a sense that I didn't know it because I think, there's a time to learn and there's a time to live in it. And I think Mm. I got to live in it first and I have a different respect for it now that I'm, you know, uh, that I've learned about it and I'm teaching it now. I mean, I I went all the way to the other end of it Mm. Uh, and I, I'm very thankful for that. Ignorance can be, that's that's why it's bliss, I think, in in some ways, but I have all those memories now untainted with restriction and I can look back now and go, Hmm, how do I metaphorically feel about, you know, this experience I've had and how can I relay that to, you know, a wider public? 
um, and this is a bit tangential. I told you, Leslie, I get off my got to you know, rein me in, but I feel like I need to say this. Yeah, I, I go for it. I want to hear it. I am my upbringing being what it was and unconventional as it was. And, and you know, handling some a child with kid gloves is a good and bad thing, you know, and I think that it has good and bad qualities that have come to to, to roost in me now, you know, as an adult looking back. But even at a, at a very young age, I was pulled into an artistic way of expressing. Mm-hmm. And I never really understood. And I think it's maybe why we have imposter syndrome or, you know, this sort of feeling fraudulent at times, because I, I have this compulsion to create and I think it's important and the whole world needs to see it. Right. Mm-hmm. I think many, I think every artist does. And I think, but with it, the other side of that is, this horrible mountain of insecurity and anxiety that, oh, who am I to, to mm-hmm. have said this thing or to created this thing? Who am I to think the whole world needs to, to stop and pay attention to it? And that sort of um, dichotomy is a very frustrating one, but a necessary one. And again, I'm glad that I had the freedom to just rage against it and then and, and, and roll into it as a, as a child with not being aware of that's the quote unquote right way or wrong way to express it and just learned to express it. I, I mm. say that now as a teacher, as well as an artist, because I think it helps me in the classroom to say, Hey, if we really mean all roads lead to Rome, then I should really get out of your way. You're on your road. Mm. And I want to make sure I'm pointing you the best I can towards what I know to be wrong. And so anyway, I know that's around the world to get to that, but I, I think that I've, I was only ever aware of it when I was told I had to be aware of it. And uh, up until then, I just was experiencing it. And I think both are necessary. So it's a, which is a hard part to do to, to have an artist to do, I guess. But, you know, you can become too aware and, and panic and not do anything. And um, you can never know and then mess up. And, I, you know, what, what is the benefit or what is the point? I think ultimately, if the end result is something that moved you to create, even if it just moves one other person, then it was enough. It was what it was meant to do. Oh, absolutely. Do you, do you have a memory of maybe your first time, you know, as a, as a storyteller th- through theater or through poetry or like your first time you really created something you would call art? Sure. Um, and gosh, what a, that's such a, perfectly subjective word or what is art, I know what, what is art to anyone because um, storytelling in every form is so, yes, so of course yeah. you know <clears throat> and I and I think they all inform each other I think mm-hmm. I'm, I'm very young again and the idea that every artist is pulling from the same you know collective you know mm-hmm. uh, unconscious in the world we're all telling the world's story in some way um, mm-hmm. but yes I do I mean I I guess it depends on what as I said, like how you wish to look at it. I remember I was, I started singing very early and I had to sing all the time uh, and thought about even doing that for a while. But I remember being six years old and for the very first time singing a song uh, from memory by myself in front of everybody uh, and how overwhelming that was. And I I never, I will never forget that, but I don't sing uh, as my art. So I will say instead that I do very clearly remember the first poem I ever wrote um, mm-hmm. it was at my grandparents and she had a, a quilting bee that was meeting at her house that day. And I, for whatever reason, I think I had sat down to write a letter to uncle Larry, uh, but for some unknown you know, reason, I ended up writing a poem 
uh, about a fruit fly that had landed on a banana that was on the counter in front of me. And so I wrote this poem about a fruit fly. And I was very excited about it. I didn't really know what I had done, uh, but I knew it wasn't a letter. And so I got up and I ran into the front of the house where my grandmother was and told her. And she was like, oh, we'll read it. And so then I read it and she was mortified because she, <laughs> she, she didn't do anything then. She's like, oh, that's wonderful. And then she took me back to the kitchen. But she was embarrassed because I basically had said, you have rotting fruit on your countertop. <laughs> Um, which she was like, that's, I'm even making banana bread. And I was like, well, this has always been the big joke now in my family, but we were just making banana bread. But um, <laughs> I do remember I wrote that at 11. I wrote my first play when I was 12. Um, mm. And I still have both of those. And I will tell you why I remember them so distinctly is because, again, I was fully loved as a child, but I, you know, every child wants what they think is what everybody else has family wise. And I I became a perfect child, like I, I, like a golden kid. Like I had to make perfect grades. I never wanted to mm. be noticed in my real life. And when you're perfect, quote unquote, you know, that's sort of the, the gimmick, right? Like it's when you're not perfect, you stand out or you draw attention. But when you're perfect, you can blend away and, and you can be kept quiet, which I liked. But I loved too that if I wrote a poem and I read it out loud, everyone had to listen and everyone had to say something nice to me. And when I was in a play or when I sang, everyone looked at me and I got to be beyond that quiet. And mm -hmm. I, so I distinctly remember that being the reason I was so initially pulled into the arts is that I got to show off in a way that it was okay to show off. Like they want you to do well on stage. They want you to have a good poem. It didn't feel like I was drawing attention to myself unnecessarily, but, uh, but those are the three. I remember six and 11 and 12. And, um, and those are the three that still, uh, you know, um, are with me as an artist today. I don't seem like I used to, but um, and I still have those, I have a copy of that poem. Well, I have the actual poem and I have the, that play. Um, and yeah, it's, I've, I've never looked back. I probably should have looked back several times, but I've kept going. But yeah, the, the, so I remember that. Oh, that's, I love that. So the first play, I mean, the first poem was about a fruit fly. What about the first play? What was it about? Oh gosh, I should not have said anything. Because now <laughs> I have to tell you, but um, as should be no surprise, um, but it was about the Civil War, uh, you know, I mean, I was 11, 12 years of age, but it was not, I, I was aware at an early age of a lot of the issues with Mississippi, and it's mm. one reason I moved back, and it's one reason I use my art, or one way in which I try to be the change I wish to see in the world, but mm. uh, it sometimes does not paint a, a pretty picture of Mississippi, but I think that it is a real and authentic picture, and I think, you know, you have to look at that first to know not to build it back that way or to paint the next picture to look the same. But I, mm -hmm. um, in, in my very 12 year old mind, I had created a woman named Ursula Blur, who was a spy between the North and the South. And, um, and she is trying to, <laughs> well, uh, let me try to make it sound like an adult play instead of how silly it ended up, but she's, she falls in love with, you know, the, a union soldier who convinces her that she's doing the wrong thing and, and so she wants to go, she was trying to, you know, um, the, uh, defect, I guess, to the, um, to the union side of things. And then they, they both, um, they die because that's 12. And that's where I was. I was reading The Hobbit. I remember very clearly. Mm. I was just very en enmeshed in that, that world of things. And, um, and it, so it doesn't end happily. It's very Southern Gothic in, in its way, but, uh, 
But it does, it resurrects some great lines like you're a poet and you don't know it, Ursula, I remember is in it. Uh, you know, so it's really, you know, had all, I pulled out all the 12 year old stops. But, Classic. Yeah, yeah, I guess so. And I am a Lee. I mean, it's like I, I can't escape that, that history. Um, so it's something I was very much aware of as a child, but I was unhappy with it and I tried to write it out, I guess. But um, anyway, it's, it's a shelved play and I think will probably always be a shelved play. <laughs> is Leslie Barker. Thanks for listening to the podcast version of the Mississippi Arts Hour. The show airs on MPB Think Radio every Sunday afternoon at 5. To access all of our past shows, subscribe to the Mississippi Arts Hour podcast using your favorite podcasting app. Hi, I'm Jason Klein from Fix It 101. If you ever thought about changing the doorknob or fixing a leaky faucet, some jobs just aren't that difficult, and yes, you can do it. If you want to find out how to do those things, listen to Fix It 101, podcast everywhere. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. You're listening to the Mississippi Arts Hour on MPB Think Radio. I'm Leslie Barker, Artspace Community Development Director at the Mississippi Arts Commission. And today I'm talking with poet and multifaceted theater artist T.K. Lee. And T.K., right before the break, we were talking a bit about the fact that you came back to Mississippi and you made a very conscious choice to do that. And I want to really dig into that. But first, where did you go in the meantime? Oh, sure. Well, I went anywhere I could go. I, um, mm-hmm. I, when I was over oh, 19 or 20, I first left and I ended up working at Disney. Um, and then mm-hmm. I enjoyed that and Orlando and made some wonderful friends there. And then, and I've lived everywhere. I, I mean, I lived overseas. I lived, um, uh, Manhattan and DC, uh, um, Bloomington, Indiana, which was factors greatly into my artistic life. That's one of my, my spiritual places, but, yeah, I, I when I left for good, the, the really first time, the, the Disney thing was part of the college credit, but it gave me a taste, you know, of, of, of living abroad. But I was uh, right, and the first of my graduate, my first graduate degree, I went right into grad school after college, and then I went to Bloomington, Indiana, and was there for uh, five years, I think, and then um, and from there to D.C., and then uh, from DC to Manhattan and back. And then that sort of became my, um, the trifecta of my moving for a while. I just sort of went back and forth between those, uh, three or among those three before I came back. You mentioned Bloomington being, you know, a really just important place to your work. And, um, and I know that, that just from talking to you so far, that place really does have such a, you know, important mm-hmm. impact on what you do. So how would you say those different places found their way into whatever you're writing? Um, well, I, th- I guess really the, uh, the better answer for that would be to think as an artist as to why it is, what is the reason that you write? Or why, why do mm. you create? And for me, I, I'm, I try to do one thing that everything that I create is I, why, or why I am writing, for instance, is I'm, I, I write to learn how to forgive. And I mm. learned that by, I think, for me anyway, uh, I mirror where I'm going or where I am living with where I've been. I think, I know, is it Thomas Wolfe who said, or Thomas Hardy, I don't forgive me, but um, you can't go home again. But mm. the, the reason you can't go home again is because you are always home. 
I mean, I am as an artist, I carry that with me everywhere I go, who I am, how I was brought up in the world. And that when I match, when I find places of similarity or people that are kindred spirits, you know, that becomes an extension of home. And so even when I write about other places like Bloomington or Manhattan factors into my work, it's always hidden. It's hidden into Mississippi. I, I don't really write about any other place except Mississippi, but even as a metaphor, you know, beyond the geographical boundaries of it, those, they weave themselves in, but it's because I want them to be a part of where I'm from. So I, I write them in as places within Mississippi or people within Mississippi rather than identify them. Uh, so it's a sort of a cheat, I know, but it's not so much that Bloomington impressed me in a different way. It's that Bloomington brought out something I had already been given at home or that I had learned at home and it had a chance to shine. A lot of times you don't do that uh, unless you just want to be a legend in your living room, but other places give you that chance to step out. And, and, you know, I, I don't think I'm, I'm not saying I'm some sort of on a mission for this, but I love that when I go places and people find out I'm from Mississippi and they are touched by any kind thing I've done or a word I've said, I think that reflection matters. And so I like to weave them back in because I think where I come from is a pretty good place. When you talk about your choice to come back here, let's let's dig into that. You mentioned a little bit about it before, but just tell us about that decision and and you know the how and the why of it all. Sure. Well, this is a little personal, but I, I don't. I mean, it's, it's honest, and I will say that it's not the way that things are now. But at the very first, uh, when I came home, I wasn't happy about it because I was about to move in a very different direction, which and would have been a different life for me entirely, I think. Um, and it happened twice, once in, when I was in Louisville, Kentucky, for my, final, my terminal graduate degree, and once when I was in Manhattan. But I came home because of medical issues, you know, because you, you do take care of family, but it hadn't really hit me that I was brought up as an only child, and even though I have siblings, but I never lived with any of them. And I, um, I realized that I was going to have, I was going to be responsible for a lot. <laughs> and I wasn't scared to death because I don't, I didn't know what to do. I didn't know about you know, all these appointments and the doctors and sessions and medicines and treatments and things that was going to, uh, they were going to rather um, dictate a lot of my life. Not that I'm saying I was ungrateful or not. I'm just speaking honestly, but it was a, yeah. a new chapter and I wasn't ready to write that chapter. I never, I never hesitated to do it. I just, it was, it's real, right? I mean, life mm-hmm. outside of your creations, it's a real thing. And I didn't know how to be responsible for a living thing that way uh, with when medical issues were, you know, and getting old, it's horrible and it's painful and things that came with it. Um, however, I had always intended to come back at some point. I didn't know that it would be permanent, but I had also, interestingly enough, around the same time, made up my mind to be a writer. I was, I love acting and I love being on the stage, but I have complete control off the stage. And mm. I loved having a chance to, to wield the pen the way I wanted and to make the worlds I wanted come to life somehow, whether on stage or in a poem or in a book. Uh, that's, that's how I ended up the first time. The second time when I came back, I, I was ready definitely to come back. And I was older at that time and had seasoned a little bit on how uh, living with certain illnesses would have to be you know, moving forward. And uh, it made it a little... I don't know, less of a stress, which is why people should do research, right? And read because you learn and it makes things better when you can put shape uh, to them. But I, um, that's the, the how I got here. I'm sorry, I may have gotten off topic, but I, that's how I came. No, back. Yeah. Um, but then I was very fortunate. You know, there's several moments in one's life, I think, that are turning points, right? You know, touchstones 
And, and it takes a leap of faith to, to do that. And for me, the, the last or the most recent one was when I went back to grad school and I had a full teaching job at a university and I, I wanted a terminal degree and they weren't able to support that. You know, they weren't against me getting it, but you know, they weren't able to work with it. And so I just thought it's now or never. I mean, am I going to be on my deathbed? Because again, I had just come back. I'd been back about two or three years at that point, helping with elderly family members who were going through terminal things. And I, I had a new respect for what it meant to have a new day, mm. you know, to live. And I was like, you know what? I don't want to be where they are and, and say, gosh, what if I had done this thing? And, um, and I just didn't want that. Whatever happened, I, would just, I was going to deal with it. But it meant quitting my job. It meant um, at my age, it was in mid-30s, and it meant walking away from comfort. And, you know, you really put your feet to the fire when you do a thing like that and say, is this what I'm really serious about? And I really want to do this art thing or this teaching thing. And, uh, and so I did. And for two years, I did a, an extended, um, I mean, not an extended intensive track of a MFA program in Louisville, Kentucky. And I had not even graduated when I was offered a job in the nascent program of the MFA and creative writing program at the W and, uh, mm-hmm which never happens. It's a very t- tough field to get into. So I count my blessings and I appreciate, I, I respect and, and truly try to put my all in my work because I know how hard it is to get these jobs, but I, I would have never had that. I would, I am exactly where I want to be doing exactly mm-hmm. what I want to be doing. And I would never have been here if I hadn't taken that chance. Does that mean every chance you take goes that way? No, it doesn't. But I, I think at the end of the day, it's about what you learn about yourself and how you make the most of that, whatever. I think it all comes together if you point yourself in the direction you want to go. And so I'm glad I came back home. And I'm glad too, because yes, you're always home. You take it and carry it with you. But after a while, I got tired of just seeing home reflected in other people in other places. And I mm. you get too far from your root. You know, you know, you can remember your house, but not the color of the shutters or whatever, you know. So I was like, I need to know the color of the shutters again. And not from a picture, but from being there in that place. And so- the second time, um, even though another tragedy sort of brought me home, but I was ready at that point, and I've never looked back on that either. I've been very, very fortunate. I think it's different too to write about it away. But I just will let me say this: I will say that it was when you're young and you leave, you're full of hope, and you don't understand that. And part of what you've packed in that baggage is nostalgia because you don't understand what it means. You don't know how to look at it or look through it. But moving away and writing about home, I look at those things that I've written from that time period and I look at things I'm writing now. And and let me tell you, it is a very, it's a gift to give yourself, I think, but it's overwhelming in a way uh, to be back in a place that never changed after you have gone and changed Mm -hmm. and expecting people to look at you and see the difference and want to be different like you. But instead they don't, they don't. Or the, the thing, the concept, the idea, the place doesn't. And when you come back after that with experience in that, packed along with that nostalgia those rose-colored glasses are shattered and you really are faced with looking at a reality that you have to either rectify or realize in a way that's okay in a way that seems artistic or not offensive or can change or goad others into action and it's a it's a grow you grow up a lot faster the older you get i think especially when you come home and sit with it and realize nothing changed but you you know like that stephen sondheim song you know giants in the sky Mm. And that's a metaphor in a lot. I like the idea of that giant 
and what to do with it. Sometimes you want to be the giant and climb up with them, but some, what happens when the giant doesn't move out of the rocking chair and it's so big and it's right there in front of you every day and, and you, have to, you have to love it and you have to learn to forgive it and you have to learn to say, oh, it's, you've earned this right or whatever the case may be. I, don't, I mean, I don't, I don't get too political or, or you know, upsetting that way, but it's, it's hard. And I think for me, I forgive a lot easier by sitting with the patience of language and letting words come to me so that I know how to talk to some of these things. And I wouldn't have gotten that if I'd stayed. I think I would have become it. I wouldn't have seen the, the difference. So that's an important thing for me in my journey anyway. And now part of your journey is also working with other artists who are, are studying to be writers. So mm-hmm. how, does, how does that just play into your life? And, you know, as an artist and as a human. Moving away and being alone, being on my own, um, and having to, you know, really work at it and work hard and not have a lot of friends and not, you know, when you, when you become the thing that is on the outside, especially when you grew up on the inside already, feeling you were from the outside, when you, when you return and, and let's say you take a job in any caring industry, which I consider teaching a caring industry, mm. I, I think having that experience and, and, and just walking in the door and saying, look, hey, I've, I've been there. I went that way and I came back. That's all people really need to see is that, oh, you, you did it. You, you walked away and you got to come back. They want to be seen and they want to be heard. And I think if you can do that with kindness and kindness that's been tempered with experience, that is, that is how I try to help. I don't try to say, oh, you haven't published and I've published and this is how I did it. So you should do it like me. I don't think that is helpful at all. I think that what is sorely missing is this sort of strengthening of individual voice and individual lives and individual purposes. And I think that is the best thing that it has done in helping me help others look to achieve their dreams. I mean, I, whatever they may be, I've taught many grad students who don't care one foot about writing a play, but they had to mm. in the class. And then at the end of that semester, I should say that way, going into it at the end of the semester, they are, they're blown away that they just did this thing. They've just written a play. I mean, if they, uh, I, I don't know if it's a lapse in educating at some point that people have made elite certain art forms, but really they're not at all. It's just the way we're looking at them. All of us are creators and all I'm doing is showing you a tool bag and saying, look, you don't have to change anything about yourself. We're just changing form or changing, you know, the context of your content. You can do any of this. And when they see that I'm not trying to change them, mm-hmm. I'm just trying to change the way they see. I'm not asking them to put another pair of lenses in their frames, but keep all their other lenses. You know, I think they, they appreciate that kind of care. And that's as much as I need to do, really. I don't need to try to change anything about them, just point them in the direction or help them down the road they're already pointed in. And so really that's why it's important to, you know, build your world and, and grow your neighborhood beyond, you know, your neighbor. It's just to, everybody gets to, we're all looking at the same things and we're all living the same lives for the same purposes. I mean, end results may differ and, and vary, but that's all it takes, I think, honestly. Just being kind and caring and letting them know that what they have to say is worth being said. You know, you mentioned some of your students had never written a play or maybe never wanted to. It's something I want us to to dive into when we come back from the break is the fact that you do write plays and and poetry and like how you um, how you approach those and if there is any difference. This is Leslie Barker. Thanks for listening to the podcast version of the Mississippi Arts Hour. The show airs on NPB Think Radio every Sunday afternoon at 5. 
To access all of our past shows, subscribe to the Mississippi Arts Hour podcast using your favorite podcasting app. Hi, I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart, Professor of Internal Medicine and Pediatrics at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. On the original Southern Remedy, we answer questions about all aspects of your health and share some of the latest medical information in the news. You can listen to the show on Wednesdays at 11 on MPB Think Radio, or you can subscribe to the podcast by searching for Southern Remedy on your preferred podcasting app. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. You're listening to the Mississippi Arts Hour on MPB Think Radio. I'm Leslie Barker from the Mississippi Arts Commission, and I'm talking with actor, director, poet, and playwright T.K. Lee. Now, T.K. Lee is also a MAC recipient of a literary fellowship for playwriting. So I want to talk a little bit about that play. Tell us about the play that you applied for the fellowship with. Oh, yes, gladly. And I'm I'm on the last revised part of it I hope I think but um yes it's a play about Walter Anderson I've mm. long been obsessed with that uh the, the legend of his tying himself to a tree during a uh, hurricane Betsy and uh I I don't know several years back I was talking to some old theater friends of mine when I was up up north visiting and um one of them said, oh, "Should put that? just make a play out of that and I was like oh my gosh that has to take place on an island and then but the more I thought about it the more I loved the idea, I think very theatrical, the idea of this play, like what it could do on the stage and what it would be artistically challenging, but in a good way to like designers as well as directors. And so I wanted to bring that play to life and I decided I wanted to do it through anyone else's perspective other than Walter Anderson's. And so I read um, Approaching the Magic Hour by his wife. It's a gorgeous and, and heartbreaking in many places uh, biography. Uh, and slash autobiography of their lives together. And then I made Hurricane Betsy a character who actually approaches, but then becomes a, a woman and then sits down and talks to him. And and then at, towards the end of the play, they tie him to the tree themselves. And then at the end of the play, the sound, the lights and everything, because I believe in theatricality. I believe mm-hmm. a story for the stage needs to have a reason to be put on the stage. And looking at it theatrically is how one achieves that. And and as that happens and the lights are flickering and the hurricane literally approaches and then is on stage, when the lights go down and come back up, the, the theory, the hope, I mean, the, the hope of it is that the, the entire set will be uh, converted into his watercolor, one of his Horn Island watercolors. Oh, uh, wow. So, you know, it is a, it's a challenge for every designer, actor, uh, as a tour de force for three actors and a director too, but I like that. I think that I believe theater binds people like family. And I think having a play like this and, and so I'm very thankful for the commission and the, the, the award that I got through the artist fellowship because it, it, it let me breathe on that particular project and promoting it to other places, getting it out for people to read the, and also I, you know, I, I haven't taken it yet because things have gotten busy, but the other tail end of it is I'm going to actually go to Horn Island and, and visit it and see it. I've never actually been to it other than through pictures. But I think it's an important story to tell. I think the metaphor of who he is, his nickname in his family, of course, was Bob, uh, which is why the play is called Bob and the Tree. And I think that I, I just, it's a delicious part of uh, Mississippi's history. And I think a lot of people don't know about it. I mean, if you're from here, you do. But when I've talked to people outside, 
they may have heard of Walter Anderson in the larger art circles, but they had never heard of this. And I thought, well, I grew up with it. This is like, you know, cornbread at dinner. I've never not heard it. And so I hope it will stand when it's ready to be read and uh, it's almost there. So, but I'm very excited about it. I think, I, this is silly for me to say, but I think every artist, whether they admit it or not, has their magnum opus. They sit on like, oh, this will be the thing I want people to know about, you know, and I don't mm. whether it is that or not for them. It helps me to have that as a goal sometimes when I'm procrastinating. And so I like to think of that about this play, like, oh, maybe this is the big one. You know, this maybe this is the one people will know and whether they do or not. I, I can't help that. But I can certainly light the fire for myself and going back because rewriting and revising is always that's really what any writer does. They write once. Everything else is a rewrite, and it's, it's exhausting to do. But hmm. it's such a good story. Leslie, it's so dynamic, the story itself. Whether Not not what I've written. I mean, him, his life. How is there not a movie already, some biopic about him that has won all these Academy Awards? I mean, he was just fascinating hmm. um, on across the spectrum, good and bad sides. He's a very interesting character, very easy to write about. Absolutely. I just visited the Walter Anderson Museum recently and just – First of all, amazing art, you know, sure. just, you know, the stories are incredible as well. Yeah. And so was his wife. I mean, Agnes or Sissy, as she's called, and as they called and also in my play, she's just, just as fascinating a person, mm. I think. And uh, I don't know, he's a lot like Emily Dickinson in that way, right? Like he didn't really promote his work. He didn't really, want, I mean, when, when he died, what they found like 2000 sketches and pieces in that chest in the attic or something, right? I mean, like he, he, I love that because I feel like that's a, quote unquote, like that's its real artistry, right? Like you're not mm. doing it to, to get all the awards or whatnot. You're doing it because you are compelled to do it. Mm. And I mean, not that I want us all to go the route he unfortunately went, but I think that, yeah, it's, it's worth, he's, he's more, his time has come. It's time for people to know him. And I hope that my play will help in some way if it ever gets on its feet, but it was worth it. I mean, I, mean, I write for myself as much as I do anyone else. And I think sometimes at the end of the day, if I've written it and I just like it, I'm okay. that's okay. That's enough for me. And I really have loved working and being in the world of this play. I would love to see that play. I'm also like, my background's in directing. And when you talk about a character being a hurricane, I'm like, that is so fun. Who doesn't want to be in the rehearsal room for that? That's amazing. Well, uh, you're, you're a mouse to God's ear and everyone else. <laughs> I would love to see it. Uh, this is a play I would really like to to get away from me and see on its own, because I think it would be a dynamic evening of theater to, to witness. I think I, I write that way too. I don't want to write plays that people want to watch. I want to write, I don't want to watch plays. I want to witness them, you know, and I think having that as a oh, mantra going into a project for me as a writer, that really changes the way the words fall on the page. So I think this is a piece of theater that needs to be witnessed. That actually leads me to something I've been wanting to ask you about. So you're talking about, as a playwright wanting to, you know, create a play that people witness, how do you approach your work as a poet it, or is it the same? Well, I think it's a lot more similar than I probably would readily admit because I, but I, I not that I'm ashamed to admit that. I mean, I think all genres and they inform each other. They write mm. towards the same goal, but you know, poetry has always been so much more intimate to me than writing a play. And I think that's because when we are exposed to poetry, we are just by ourselves reading it. But mm. when we're exposed to theater, you cannot do that privately. You have to do that publicly. You have to be with an audience. You have to see live actors in front of you. So I have always approached theater with the idea that this is meant for public consumption. And, and though it creates intimacy through content and, and environment with how close you sit or what style of theater you're in, but poetry seems so much more, 
I've invited you one on one one at a time into my heart and home. And mm. uh, like Frank O'Hara, you know, his uh, he and Leroy Jones made up this idea of personism, but it really it took, uh, you know, and people sort of thought of it as a real movement for a while. But it, he believed, you know, that's what a poem is. It's like a phone call. It's a conversation between two people, the poet and this person reading the poem. I, I love that idea. But I I am I have so much more freedom in one way about the, how I handle subject matter. But I feel mm. that it is, I'm always so shocked when people want to talk about a poem I've written as opposed to a play. And I think it's because of my own mindset of how I'm looking at it when I create it. I think of a book of poetry as it's just me and you. And we're going down a, you know, in a boat together down this whatever. But a play, yeah, 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 talk about it. It's all supposed to be, I've given everyone permission in a play to use their own voices to interpret what I've written. And I do not do that in a poem. And I think that very different type of, what are your best words in the best order you can put them in? It changes depending on what I'm writing, um, which makes it a lot harder for me. When I share my poetry or if I'm at a reading, I might get choked up too because I'm not done, not that I'm so moved by what I've written, but I know the personal point behind it. I've not mm-hmm. prepared it necessarily. I've not put clothes on those words to be seen in public the way I put the clothes on the words and plays for them to be seen in public. So mm-hmm. it's a little challenging, I think, but. I wouldn't change it for the world. And I think a lot, I'm a narrative poet, if I'm anything, I would argue. And a confessional, I, I said that one time in my second graduate degree in the class, and I got laughed at. I think everything is confessional. I, and I mm. guess I'll go to my grave believing it. But I know that there is a distinction between that when you measure the movements and categories and groups like fugitive poets or confessional poets. But I can't see how anything an artist does is not an act of confession of some kind. And certainly it is for me. And I think people say, if they see me read, that they would look at my poems less as poems and more as dramatic monologues, which I think they are. I mean, I think that's it's very hand in hand, you know, to say that. And maybe if I looked at it more like that, it would, I would make them more accessible, perhaps, if that were an issue with it, I guess. But I like that they're private in, my, in their way and that the plays I do are for public in their way. I like that way of looking at the distinction between them. I like that. Yeah. One is telling the secret and one is sharing the secret. I'm sharing the secret mm. with you in, in theater. Everyone can see it, but I'm telling you the secret when I'm doing my poetry. And I like, I like thinking of it that way. Oh, I love that. So you recently had a book come out. Is that right? I did. Yeah, I sure did. Last Tell time. us about the book. So, well, thank you for asking. It, is, uh, it came out September 6th. It's called Scapegoat. Uh, in my head, my publisher and I haven't necessarily decided on this, but they're supporting it. But I have this idea of doing a seven book series. Uh, the first book that came out a couple of years ago is called To Square a Circle. And it is the begin, like a birth through middle age life, growing, adulting and death, a life cycle of an unnamed narrative. And each of the issues that are addressed in that book, uh, of which there were six, so there'd be seven total. Um, I'm going to look at each one of those things in the books to come. So the scapegoat is looking at all of the issues with learning how to love, how to be loved, Losing love, uh, lost love. It's a different kind of love poetry. I wouldn't actually call it a love poem, you know, series like that because of the way we think of when we hear the word just love poem. But it is, you know, love is ugly sometimes and it's hard, mm-hmm. and it requires sacrifice. And, uh, and so that's what scapegoat does. And it's following the same sort of tripartite cycle, I guess, like a beginning and a middle and an end of life, like birth, death, to death or whatnot. And in this one, it's about, you know, childhood, love, learning to love with the family, 
love and a relationship and losing that and infidelity and all that comes with it. And then learning to say goodbye, but not dying as opposed to I'm saying the narrator says goodbye to the way he had been. And he, he sort of embraces this new life on his own at the end of that book. And then the other books are, will follow in the similar fashion, um, looking at different, you know, things like charity begins at home, you know, that sort of home culture and what it does for you and how you interpret it as you get older. So yeah, mm-hmm. so right now Scapegoat is out and that's what that book is about. And uh, it's a little different than what I've done before because it requires, you really do need to look at the page. Like I, I left, I did a, on purpose like a draft poem and left it with the lines crossed out. So you actually see the process of um, building that poem. And then one is all about text messaging and you kind of need to see the text bubbles <laughs> to get, to make it make mm-hmm. sense because it sometimes reads across that way. But. So if our listeners were interested in finding this book, how do they find it? Uh, sure. Well, it is everywhere books are available. Uh, any bookstore <laughs> should have it online. You could go to um, Unsolicited Press, which is my publisher, and get it directly from the small press, which I support very much. Um, but clearly you could do it at uh, Barnes & Noble, Amazon, anywhere. Just look for Scapegoat uh, and T.K. Lee and... Um, I have no more free copies to give. I'm sorry to say. (laughs) (laughs) Well, before we go, I hate that we're running out of time, but if people want to just follow your work and, you know, what plays are coming up and everything like that, where do they, where do they look for that? Sure. Well, um, I do need to get my website. It's, it's up. You can certainly go to it. I haven't updated it in a couple of months, but um, you can follow me on Facebook uh, at TK Lee writing. You can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at the clever Chris. Chris is with a K. Um, and coming up, I'm, I'll be at the Wealthy Symposium uh, with Scapegoat, which is at the end of this month. Oh, um, and I'm actually, and I'll be reading with C.T. Salazar and the, another poet. I can't remember. I'm so sorry that I cannot remember who it is at the moment, but I'm um, coming up in November. I have a couple more readings in Cleveland and then in Hattiesburg. Uh, both of those are in November, but I'll post all of that on my media. And if you want to see me acting, I just found out last week. I don't know. I'm up for tenure. I don't know where I think I have time to do all of this, but I'm doing it anyway. Um, I will be in the um, in a play called Underneath the Lintel with Startful Community Theater for their Mississippi Theater Association. It's a one-man show, so it's just going to be me on the stage for an hour, uh, but it's a fantastic play. I did not write this play, but I'll be awesome. acting in it. And so, yeah, you can see a little bit of me in different ways. That'll be in January in Tupelo. I will be there for that. Like, I really am going to be there for that. Like, I'll be at well, the MTA Festival, so I'm very that's excited. That's exactly right. MTA, that's right. <laughs> yeah. And the Starkville Community Theater and MTA are also Mac grantees. So it's all, you know, very connected. Very excited. That's right. We keep it all in the family. All, all in, in the, the family. family. So. <laughs> well, I have just had so much fun talking with you. Thank you so much well, thank for being you. here with us today. Well, thank and you, thank- Leslie, for having me. Thanks for listening to this MPB Think Radio podcast. MPB depends on support from listeners, so if you can, please contribute today at mpbonline.org. Hi, I'm Ryder Taff, Portfolio Manager at New Perspectives, a fee-only financial advisory and co-host of Money Talks. Each week, we take your personal finance questions and tell you about a money topic we hope you find helpful. Money Talks can be heard Tuesdays at 9 a.m. on MPB Think Radio. Podcasts can be found on our website, money.mpbonline.org, or on your smart devices podcasting platform.